0: This is CliffCentral.com
1: Welcome to the Understanding Cancer podcast, a series of key conversations that bring together all you need to know about cancer, empowering you with information and knowledge. This 10th podcast series is brought to you by Discovery. My name is Sonia Booth. Each week, we chat to some of the country's foremost experts in the fields of health and wellness for cancer prevention, as well as in cancer treatment. We are bringing you fascinating insights relevant to every person out there. Our fourth episode focuses on cancers that affect children. Today with us on the line from Limpopo is pediatric oncologist Dr. Buchilo Nechituni. I am also joined in studio by Professor Janet Paul, who heads the Pediatric Hematology Oncology Unit at the charlotte Maxeke johannesburg Academic Hospital. Audrey Ludic, an educational expert who is currently Program Development Manager at CHOC, the Childhood Cancer Foundation of South Africa. And Karen Bain, mother of two young daughters, Jessica and Georgia, who were both diagnosed with cancer. Ladies, welcome. Thank you.
2: Thank you, thank you. Thank you.
1: This theme is very close to home for me. A school friend of my son's, a fourteen year old boy who was very recently diagnosed with cancer, he is, in fact, a patient of yours, Professor Poole. I was at first very unsure how to approach his mum, who is a very good friend of mine. I mean, to see if she was okay. If her son was okay, and what could I do to help? In engaging with her, I soon realized how key it is to be just there to listen when someone is in this situation. She was, of course, very emotional and um, overwhelmed, but she handled it with such strength as they went on. And I know you understand what it's like for a mum better than anyone else in the room. Karen? You have faced what few parents can imagine going through. Two daughters diagnosed with cancer. Losing Jessica to cancer must have been devastating. And later, finding out that Georgia also had cancer must have been heart-wrenching. Thankfully, Georgia's doing well. But this has all happened within a space of 10 years.
3: Absolutely, Sonia uh jess was diagnosed so uh in 2007 um jess jess's cancer was called neuroblastoma is called neuroblastoma um and that's actually one of the cancers that doesn't it's stage four hers was uh, neuroblastoma stage four and it's one of those that doesn't have a great prognosis um jess was 10 months at the time it took a while to get her diagnosed um and that's that's often a challenge with such young children is to actually get them diagnosed into the right to the right place um so she she was an amazing little one she she really fought hard uh she had about 6 months of chemo as well as a stem cell transplant um she she passed away at 20 months and yes i mean through through that journey we believed that she would survive we absolutely had every hope um that i guess any parent would have that she would be the one on the right side of the statistics um because statistics as we know are generalized and, and we really can't tell which side any of us will fall after jess passed away about 2 years after jess passed away we uh, had georgia uh, we have an older son as well actually um ethan who's now 16 um, georgia georgia was diagnosed last year 2017 with a brain tumor um her diagnosis came as absolutely as a shock to us uh it was it was um a normal day and and she had an accident which uh, she fell off the couch bumped her head um and yeah it, it kind of progressed from there and i think as as professor Poole said you would kind of look for something that's out of the ordinary um so so she recovered quite quickly but there was uh, her scan showed Quite a quite a, what they were, thought was a bleed at the time, but it turned out to be the tumour that was masked by the bleed. Uh, so it was confirmed in September last year that she that she had a brain tumour. Uh, she's currently uh, eight years old. She was seven years at diagnosis, and she went through. Uh, she had surgery, had the had the tumour removed. She had radiation and and she's had chemo. Um, so, so absolutely. When when we found out George's news, it, it kind of George has been brought up in a house uh, to know about cancer, to know that she had a sister that passed away from cancer, to know that it's a possibility. But the last thing we thought was that another one of our children would would have cancer.
0: Let me
1: ask you, Professor Poole, to put us in the picture here. What are families like Karen's up against when it comes to dealing with cancers that affect young children and teenagers?
2: Children's cancer is a relatively rare diagnosis. Um, just about everybody has an experience of a friend or a relative who has cancer as an adult, but children's cancer is actually much rarer than that, and the incidence is around one um, per 7.5 million, so you can't, it's not actually a common disease, but um You could say one in 500 or one in 600 children per year, you know, per, would be diagnosed with cancer. Um, the most common cancer in children is leukemia, which is a cancer of the, um, white blood cells or the blood, um, which starts in the bone marrow. And that accounts for about a third of all childhood cancer. Um, the second most common childhood cancer or brain tumors um and those appear to be on the increase in diagnosis but it may it might not be that the incidence is increasing it might be that we are just getting better at imaging the brain um we've got much uh, far better scan um facilities and and they're much more sensitive in picking up, um, tumors in the brain. But obviously, um, uh, the symptoms and signs are, are very non-specific. Um, and then we have a whole host of other tumors that are, um, occur in organs of the body. So things like the eye, the liver, the kidney, um, and all of these cancers are, um, what we call embryonal cancers, they are, um, what the tissue looked like, what the organ looked like in fetal life. And so when you hear adults talking about their cancers, um, like carcinoma of CA breast or CA prostate in, in men, those kind of cancers, slow growing, not, um, uh, not terribly responsive to treatment, are, do not occur in children by and large. Okay, so the, the cancers in children, the, most of them respond very well to treatment. Dr. Nechituni, I am sure you share Professor Poole's
1: insights. Can you take our conversation further and tell us about the cancer journey that ensues when a child is diagnosed?
0: So cancer is one of those things, when you tell the parents, it's very challenging to them and they, their families. And it disrupts their whole family, uh, program. And I mean, their first reaction when you tell them that your child has cancer, like they're feeling shocked and they start asking themselves why, because what could, what, what could I have done to actually prevent it from happening? They start feeling guilty. So normally when you sit with the parents, when you want to tell when you tell them about their um, child's diagnosis. The first thing that you normally have to do, that I normally do, you have to reassure the parents that it is not your fault. There was nothing that you could have done to actually prevent it. And no one knows why your child has cancer and not the child next door. Because the whole time when you are counseling them, if you don't get that out of the way, the parents are feeling guilty. They don't even listen to anything. Normally the right thing to do is that first day you let them express their feelings, you tell them about the diagnosis and you schedule another appointment so that you can talk to them when they are, when when they can hear the information. And when they come back, you actually tell them bring a notebook so that you can actually write some of this information. Sometimes it's even better when you're talking to them, you can even draw a picture. You can even write notes for them so that when they go back, because it's a lot of information, then they can still remember.
1: How critical is it to establish the family's dynamics and support structure around a sick child?
0: During that counseling session or during that uh, first-time session when you're telling them about the cancer, it's also important to establish the child support structure because going way forward, like if... It's one parent. They're not going to cope on their own. If the time you were telling the diagnosis was just the mother there, you actually want to know, are they married? Are they like, is the husband supportive? Do they have any parents, any relatives who are going to be there? Because it's important because along the way they're going to get tired. And at the same time, you, Because you have to explain to them about the diagnosis. You need to tell them about the treatment. You need to tell them about the side effects. And the important thing during that um journey, one thing that I realized was that parents always want to know about the school for their kids. Like that's the most important part that you, during that first time journey, you need to tell them, you need to address about the school for their, for their child because they might not listen to the whole conversation. And at the end of your explanation, they want to know what about the school? What should we do about the school? So those are the things that you actually need to, to address in the beginning when you sit down with them. You need to sit and plan how the way forward because for an example, you find that the mother is the only breadwinner. And if the child is affected with cancer, for an example, if the child has leukemia, they're going to be at the hospital multiple times. It means they might not even be able to actually uh, go and work because the whole time they're going to be at the hospital. So those are the important things that you actually have to address in the beginning because it's like most of the people end up losing their jobs. If they don't lose their jobs, if there's no good support, if they had a partner, they end up losing their partner. So it's actually that journey where it can either, if it's a couple, it can either bring them, like it can strengthen them and they, they, they endure it together or it can break them. So those are like some of the things that they actually go through when, when you, the minute the child is diagnosed, the treatment and the way forward. You must make sure that the parents are on board or whoever the caregiver, they understand everything because it's a long journey. It's not something that happened now and then that's it.
1: How important is emotional support for the family?
0: Along the way, you need to continue with the counselling. You need to find out whether does the mum needs support, does the child need counselling. Unfortunately with us, especially what I see here in in Limpopo, like with us black people, we don't want to talk. Like We just feel like, if you refer me to a psychologist, how is the psychologist going to help me? What is the psychologist going to actually say to me, that is going to help. So you have to help them talk about their feelings, their emotions. Normally when you cancel someone and they can actually talk about their feelings, I get excited. But the one that keeps it in, it's a problem because that's why some of them, especially if they're not educated enough, then they don't come back. At the same time, during this journey, you need to also identify if it's a small child, like how do... You have the parents to handle the child. What do you tell the child? How do you prepare the child that you're going to be coming to the hospital every day? You're going to be getting this treatment all the time. Most of the time, what parents do, they actually don't want to tell the kids what's wrong with them. They actually want to hide the information. And they forget that the kids are very observant. They're coming to the hospital every day. Somehow they will ask. You need to be honest with the child. I know it's hard and you want to protect the child, but you need to sit down with the child and say, okay, find words." There are many, like, even Chalk write very nice books of how to actually sit down with your child and, like, tell, break the bad news to the child, tell your child, like, you can either use to say, like, if it's a bigger child, you can actually tell the child that you actually have cancer and it's not your fault. Because sometimes you realize that the same emotions that you are going through, they are also going through the same emotion. So if you don't address them, that's why some of them end up being depressed and you're wondering. And kids cope better if you actually tell them in the long run, like if they know what's happening, they're already ready. Okay, today's my chemo day. Today I need to do one, two, three. But if they're in the dark, they are also... Like in fear, they are also rebellious because they don't understand what is happening. So it's always important that it's not only the doctors who need to talk to the parents, but the parents also need to make sure that the kids understand their illness because they cope better when they understand what is happening.
1: Karen, I'm sure that what Dr. Nechituni has just said about how difficult it is to explain cancer to a child resonates strongly with you.
3: I really appreciate what the doctor has just said, because absolutely being open and honest with your children is the most important thing. Um, Even though we seem to be expert parents at at children with cancer, funny enough, um, my husband and I first told Georgia she had an alien in her brain and, the doctor was taking it out and flushing it down the toilet, which is probably the worst mistake you can make. We we obviously corrected that and, and told her the truth so she understood it. Um but you kind of want to protect them from from the reality, um, but but you actually do them a dis- disservice and you do yourself a disservice in the long run because they need to know the truth. Um and and obviously it's age appropriate, so depending on the age of the child, um you've got to bear that in mind. Um but being open and and loving your child, being with them, being there, knowing that you they know you are their rock, uh, you are the person that they need uh with with them all the time. We're very lucky, we've got a fantastic support system with grannies and grandpas, um, uncles, etc. around. They really still want their mom and dad, um, no matter the age. Uh that's the one person where they can truly be themselves. Um So to have a, to have a positive and, and fun relationship with them during this time is also important. Uh, during Jess's time, I was very lucky to, to be with a number of moms in hospital and as the situation is, you make, you have to make the best of it. It's, it's a terrible place to be spending time and, and one of them particularly had a amazing sense of humor. So we spent a lot of time laughing and really making Jokes about things that if any other person had to hear them would think it was completely inappropriate, but it's, it's a coping mechanism and you do what you can and and laughter truly can be the best medicine when, when there are no other answers. There are no, no clear answers as to why you're the one sitting here and why your child's the one in the bed. Um, but when you get to the other side of it, you've got to the other side of it a little bit brighter and a little bit more positive than you, than you started off.
1: Was your relationship with the doctors and nurses who were treating your daughters key to your outlook?
3: Having a positive relationship with the doctors and nurses is important. Um, the doctors, as as they've said, to, to give parents this news is is the worst thing for them. Um, it's not something that they I think they're all the most amazing people because to do this day in, day out must be must be really awful sometimes. Um but but knowing that it's it's not their fault. This is a situation that's completely outside of anyone's control. Um, but working with them and asking questions and and working together on it, and, and especially the nurses. The nurses work long hours. Um, sometimes, you know, you, you get frustrated when you're in hospital and things aren't as you would like them to be. You're not in your own home environment. But, again, um, being positive and being good with the nurses also, I think, helped us in the long run have the best experience that we could have given the situation. So I think that's also important. I'm
1: watching you. You are filled with so much positivity and optimism one of the things that i've been wanting to ask you and only if you are comfortable to answer is how did that affect your family dynamics how did it affect your marriage i don't think i can handle even five percent of what you went through
3: no absolutely i mean it's a huge challenge um yeah grant and i are actually a great team um, we 're very good at at least making sure that our children are the center of our world um, and that whatever they need and uh, you know happens so um, being there either him or me for our children um, and being able to give each other the space to we process things very differently i 'm very uh, factual and project management type person my husband 's possibly more in touch with emotions, so we kind of balance um, out. But yeah, I think um, it, it has been stressful at times. I think we've worked through so many things, and and with Georgia now, it's really just making sure she gets the best of of everything that she needs. Georgie currently is in in grade two at St. Peter's, and we're obviously going through now reintroducing her back into uh, the consistent day to day schooling and emotional social um, well being of a of a grade two.
1: Audrey. You are expertly placed to give us insight into what Karen has just raised. Your book, Back to School, guides on how to handle a child with cancer and how schools can support children who are hospitalized until they return to class.
4: Um, What Karen said that is very true is that um, when a child is diagnosed with cancer, it does not only affect the child, but it affects the whole community. Um, the friends, the family. And the roles within the family um, often change when the child is diagnosed as one parent needs to be um, at the uh, where the child receives the treatment. Um, the the emotional impact of the child that is diagnosed varies also in intensity. So when a child who has received um cancer treatment, sometimes go back to school, they might have lost their hair due to the treatment, and this may cause anxiety for them for fear of being labelled or teased. So on the return, they sometimes feel that they don't fit in because they are different than other children. While I was the principal of the Tiger Hospital School, we realised that when teachers have children with cancer in their class. Most of the time, they really don't know how to support this child. The teacher must be sensitive to the needs of the learner to obey the doctor's instructions, for example, the use of the toilet, um, eating habits, etc., and it's very important that the teacher know the side effects of, of the treatment. Sometimes slurred speech, sometimes the child may be tired, um, there may, might be mood swings, um, and sometimes there's a failure to submit to discipline. She also needs to prepare the classmates on um, the emotional or maybe physical changes of the cancer um, Patient, um, Due to the long-term treatment And then also suggest ways um, for the learners how to handle the the child But most important, the child must be treated normally um, And taking into account the limitations of the illness So it's important to acknowledge that these um, possibilities So that the child do not become isolated or withdrawn and, um, children who are diagnosed with cancer, we, we often see it. It's as if they grow up faster than normal children. They just become emotionally so, um, matured. And sometimes they experience their peers completely different. Um, so, and then also when they go back, they've got the sense of, I've missed out on something. Um, and they have this sense of loss that um, that they uh, towards their, their peers. I think it's very important for the teachers to be involved with the child. The teacher can, for example, um, make packs of work adapted to the circumstances of the child. Um, have the same content, but but give uh, less volume of work so that the child don't lose out. Um, teachers or learners. Can volunteer to assist um, children with specialized um, subjects like maths or science or whatever. Um, trained volunteers from Choc can assist children with uh, with school projects. Then also, I think one of the one of the things to me that makes sense, is an uh, older sibling, for example, to make that child part of the journey um, of the child and to come to the hospital and help his child with schoolwork or family member. so immediately they feel part of the journey. Um, some private hospitals have child life specialists that that can also help the children with um, schoolwork. And then there are members of the multidisciplinary team Um Occupational therapists, etc., that that can um, help the the children um, with with the schoolwork. Audrey, few people know about the option of
1: hospital school. Tell us about that.
4: When we look at the academic um, support to the hospitalised children, there are different ways how these children can be um, um, supported the hospital school is a school that operates in a hospital, usually at a pediatric hospital, which provides education to all school-going, um, hospitalized children. Now, hospital schools is not available um, everywhere, unfortunately, because there is a cost to it. So these schools, where they are, usually linked to the government hospitals, um, help hospitalized children to regain and maintain their academic Progress during periods of treatment or rehabilitation, and these schools are accredited and run by the local public school system, funded by the state, and uh, mostly based on the same curriculum and testing mandate um, that uh, that is um, prescribed by the state.
1: Audrey. If you were to summarize for parents who are listening, the key aspects we need to consider in reintegrating a child back into the school system, what would those be?
4: There's three important aspects to be considered. That is communication, organization and emotional support. It is important to keep regular contact from the school site with the parents or the, the, um, the family uh, to discuss information regarding the child's behavior in this at the school and also um, at home. If there's a hospital school, it's important that the hospital school communicate with a pair, uh, with a mainstream school to keep the child um, on par with what's happening in both schools. The hospital school also needs to do an exit report for the mainstream school then to remember where to go on um, with the child on the academic level. And um, most hospital schools also have an independent educational support program Um that they do with a learner. So if this goes with a child to the mainstream school, it will help the, the, the mainstream school then to develop a remedial program that could support this child. And then it's very important to, if possible, to share the work that's being done in the mainstream school with a child in the hospital. The purpose is to facilitate re-entry to the mainstream school without the loss of education and and then, of course, should any physical, emotional, and behavioural uh, changes be detected in the learner, it is important that the educator must contact the, the parents, so the parents can then contact the treatment team so that they, it could be a multidisciplinary team um, to help this child and I know this sounds like the ideal, but really, I think we need to go and help the children because they really lose out. And they just want a normal life. I can remember when I was um, working in the hospital school, sometimes the children would be so sick. And when I would get to the bed, I would always ask, "Uh, do you want me to teach you? Do you want school? Yes, miss, I want school. They would immediately just, it was as if there was just from dark to light, from sadness to happiness. Because there's a little bit of normality That comes into the space And even if it's just literacy Numeracy and a little bit of life skills They feel this is something that they know Different from Needles and procedures And whatever And it also gives the parents A bit of space to go and have a cup of coffee Or just go and see the sunlight When the teacher works with the children
1: Professor Poole We hope that as many children as possible come through cancer and get back to school and lead a normal life as Audrey has explained. Some childhood cancers have an excellent prognosis and some not. What determines the outcome?
2: It's really the um, biology of the tumor. So for instance, in, in leukemia, um, there are the majority of children who have leukemia have what we call acute lymphoblastic leukemia, about eighty percent of them have that, and the prognosis of that kind of leukemia is around um, eighty to ninety percent of cure. So, um, on the other hand, twenty percent of leukemias are another kind called acute myeloblastic leukemia, whose prognosis is not as good, although it is. Pretty good. It's around 60%. And I think it all depends on the biology of the, of the, of the leukemia. So what kind it is, what are the abnormalities in, in, in the white cells or the leukemia cells. Um, when it comes to solid tumors or, or, or lumps somewhere, the, the prognosis depends on what it is but also the stage of the tumor. So leukemia doesn't have a stage. It's either there or it's not there, um, but the, the solid tumors do. So, for instance, if you have a tumor in the kidney, which we call a Wilms tumor, um, that has a really good prognosis, um, but um, requires a, a combination of treatment. However, when it's a stage four, which means it's spread elsewhere in the body, then, um, then the prognosis is not so good. Um, we have other tumors like bone tumors, whose prognosis also depends on the stage. And, um, if they do really well and come early, then, then it's, then the prognosis is really good. But if, if they come late and this tumor is already spread or it's very large, or, um, have, has, has, uh, has involved a lot of, of, of bone and everything, then, then the prognosis is not as good. So when we, when we talk about children coming as soon as possible, um, to get, uh, um, treatment, okay, or to be diagnosed, then we have to de- determine what the, the stage is. And um, whether they will do well or not. So there's a there's a there's a there's a difference between the different kinds of tumour, and there's also a difference with stage of tumours. Professor Poole,
1: to take what you're saying further, to what extent are childhood cancers linked to genetic factors?
2: That kind of um, scenario in childhood cancer is actually quite rare, and it's 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 really less than five percent of all childhood di- cancer diagnoses. So the most common, um, the most common one that we know about is the retinoblastoma gene. And, um, it's, that is, um, can be handed down from, from a parent to a child. And it's one parent that has the gene and, um, and it, and it goes through to the children and they, Get diagnosed quite early, and they often have um, cancer in both eyes. We had a family where I had treated the um, the mom when she was a little girl with retinoblastoma, and it it was an, quite a long time ago, and so we didn't have the sophisticated treatments that we have nowadays. So she had to have um, she had her eye removed. And, um, and she also had radiation and she was actually blind in the other eye as well. And she survived and, um, she got married and had twins and they were, um, they were, she actually told her doctor that she had had cancer of the eye and he said not to worry and, then she noticed that there were white spots in their twin's eyes and both of them had it, uh, retinoblastoma. Okay, so they were both identical twins. So luckily she picked it up early and the children were treated and they both um, survived with eyesight and eyes intact. But she was a very positive person and um, the twins are now very, um, have grown up and are, 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 are quite, um, a bit older, but they will also have the problem that they could pass the gene on to their children. So there's, there's very little, um, in cancer that we know about familial cancers. There is a, a familial cancer syndrome, um, which, in which, um, there is a gen- genetic defect, but it's not, on obvious carrier. And the families, um, develop, uh, different cancers. So you can, so for instance, the, if you have a breast cancer in the mom or a female relative at a very early age, um, and sometimes their children will have leukemia and some other cancers, that can be a familial cancer syndrome. And then those children, when they get treated for their cancer, are at a very high risk for developing another cancer later on. But that's a very, very, it's very, very rare. It's only, it's a really under 5% of all childhood cancers. So there are, um there are familiar, what we call familial cancer syndromes, but the actual gene that we, we don't really know what it is. One that we do know about is the retinoblastoma. For adults, we do
1: screening tests for breast or prostate cancers and more. Let me ask you, Dr. Nechitouni, are there any screening tests for childhood cancers that parents need to be made aware of?
0: So, unfortunately, unlike adults, in children, we don't have any specific uh, screening test that we can actually say uh, go do full blood count or do a brain scan every three months. Uh, But... What we normally do, we actually um, promote the early warning signs. The one cancer that um, you can actually ask the parents to go uh, for screening is if there's a family history of cancer of the eyes, which we call retinoblastoma, because that could also be genetic. So when they have a child, you actually ask them to go check and to make sure that the child does not have retinoblastoma. But otherwise, there is no specific screening test that we can do. So the other thing that you can do is when you have uh, kids that are at risk of having cancer, when they are born, you actually uh, educate the parents and make sure that they, they understand. Like, for an example, let's say a child that is born with Down syndrome, we know that they are at risk of um, having leukemia, for an example. So when that child is born, you actually make sure that they know that if the child starts bruising easily and not getting better and they don't understand why, or if the child has fever that is not responding to anything, or if the child complains of bone pain, they must actually take the child to the hospital because there's an increased chance that that child, specific child has... Um, leukemia just because the child has down syndrome which put the child also at risk of uh, of of leukemia like for an example a child that has been diagnosed with hiv you always also make sure that because like they might develop glands and when they develop glands we actually think everything is tb so you make them aware that when these kids develop glands everywhere in the body. It's not actually meaning that it could only be TB. The first thing that we'll think of is TB for sure. But if you screen for TB and the TB is negative and there's no history suggestive of TB, you also think that it could possibly be a leukemia, possibly be a lymphoma. So those are some of the things that you can do. Unfortunately, there is no specific screening test that we can use. What we can do, we can just educate the parents of the early warning signs. Like to say, if you have any symptom that persists, that does not get better, then you must go and consult. I always teach younger doctors to say, if a child comes to your GP practice, they have um, for an example, let's say they have these glands and then they have fever and you think that they have an infection, you give them an antibiotic, they're not getting better. Make it somebody's problem that because you can actually be missing a malignancy. So the other thing is like, let's say for an example, when a child is born, we always educate the nurses that when you examine them or when they go for those injections, the immunization, they must check their eyes because they can actually miss the cancer of the eyes if they don't actually open the eyes and check if there's any white spot in the eyes. Because the earlier they pick it up, the better the prognosis. If you say that the child doesn't see well when they come to the clinic or they come to the GP practice, or even mom at home, if they see that they, the child is not seeing well or the child has bulging eyeballs, they must be worried and they must actually say, Let's go to the clinic or let's go to the hospital because we might actually be missing a malignancy. When you bath your child, you must actually feel your, your child's abdomen to see if there's anything abnormal that you can see. Cause most of the time, like cancer of the kidney, most of the parents actually can pick it up that there's actually a lump in the abdomen when they're bathing their kids and also tell the, like the primary, um, health uh, system like the nurses to say when you when these kids come for for review or when they come for immunization always fill the abdomen to see if they don't have any uh they don't have any lump and the other thing the lumps can also be on the head they could also be on the neck so people must get to a habit of actually feeling their kid's body to see if there's any abnormal lump that they don't understand because then they can actually take the child in and then the cancer can be detected early because unfortunately we don't have that specific screening test and the other thing is if a child goes to go to the to and consult the child was having fever and that fever is gone for more than two weeks the child is losing weight the child is not eating well the child is just bleeding or it's bruising, having all the bruises on the body as if somebody was beating the child. It means there's definitely something wrong. Then that child must be referred so that it can be screened to see whether does that child has a malignancy like leukemia or not. Because some of these symptoms, like they are not obvious. Like in adults where you know that if you have a breast lump you must actually go, then we know that you probably have breast cancer in children, majority of these symptoms are non specific, like kids that have bone pains that is not getting better most of the time, you won't even think that it's a malignancy and only to find that when they have that pain, those bone pains and they have other things like fever, it could mean that they actually have leukemia, then you have to take them to the hospital. And the other thing is, if the child, it's not working well, especially with a child that was walking, running, and all of a sudden, when they walk the other limb or their speech, it's not normal anymore, or they started being aggressive, their behavior is not normal Or they start vomiting in the morning or they complain of a headache. I always tell people, why should a child have a headache? It means there's something wrong. Or if the child starts vomiting in the morning, it means there's something wrong. So that child could possibly be having a brain tumor. So then you have to actually refer that child and make sure that they do a brain scan. So we don't have screening uh, screening tool, but we have those early warning signs that we can actually go around and educating people so that they can actually send these kids early because the problem is majority of them are not diagnosed early. They are diagnosed late. And unfortunately, when they are diagnosed late, there's nothing one can do because the cancer has already spread. It's always better. They, 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 the survival rate is better when you detect early than when you detect it late.
1: Thank you, Dr. Nishituni. I am sure that parents listening to us will heed your information. Karen, you two are doing all you can to raise awareness on all elements of childhood cancer through the CHOC cows. Tell us more about that.
3: The best way to describe the cows is it's really a happy accident. So uh, the year that Jess passed away, so that's uh, 2008, um, I decided to to raise funds for CHOC, uh, CHOC the Childhood Cancer Foundation of South Africa, uh, they played a significant role for us, certainly in the last few months of Jess's life, uh, really around the palliative care, the quality of life uh, section, that we didn't really, obviously no parent really understands how to to deal with that. We were so grateful for our support system and everything that we had, but that there are many parents out there, many families that don't have the same as us, and, and that's really where Chuck um, steps in. Grant and I decided to fundraise, um, and ride the 94.7. So, well, sorry, 947. Um, so we, for a number of years, had been kind of deciding to do it and then bailing out at the last minute. And, and this was the year we decided, you know, life needs to now move forward. Um, so we got a group of friends together and, and a lot of those guys are serious athletes. And for them, doing the 947 was not, not, much of a challenge. So, so what we decided to do was dress up in cow suits. Um, joined to that, we had an ice cream bike and, and we got going and, and the fundraising really took off. It, it was amazing what was possible. So this was before the time of ride for a purpose and, and certainly when there are as many charities as there are now doing the cycle races and the marathons. Um, so we, we got going that first year and it really just took off from there. And year after year, we've had more and more people returning to do the 947. We um, swim the Midmar now. We've, uh, this year, first time ever done Comrades, um, had up to 200 runners running in Calprint. Um, we, we speak to people all the time in terms of doing new events. We've got people <coughs> climbing Kilimanjaro and... Walking all over the the world uh, for for childhood cancer, and really our our ethos is about having fun. The cows provide funds through to Choc, so that Choc can continue with their good work. So so at the beginning of the year, we sit with Choc and we agree on the the priorities that they have and the projects that are important to them. And, and that's what we turn to, to our donors and say, this year, this is what you are doing. You are supporting the psychosocial workers. You're paying their salaries. Those people that speak to every single child, um, that help the families. That's just an example of one of the projects. Um, but we make sure that it makes a difference to, to the children affected with cancer.
1: Karen. That's really remarkable, and we wish the cows all the best with supporting CHOC, a remarkable resource for supporting children affected by cancer and their families. Dr. Nechitouni, which are your go-to resources, those that you would recommend for parents for additional information and support?
0: One of the foundations that support us is uh, the Childhood Cancer Foundation, the CHOC Foundation. So I think nationally they are very committed to support the parents um in all hospitals I think they are there and the other foundations that are there that actually support the different hospitals or different children that has cancer it's cancer though cancer is both adults and um And children, but they are there also to support. And they are most of the time they are available in the, in the center where the child is diagnosed. They normally somewhere they, and then the doctors or the social workers work hand in hand with them. And the other foundation that actually, um, are there and helpful is reach for a dream for example like when kids is diagnosed with cancer they all come there and talk to the doctors and find out which kids do we want to refer and we refer all the kids because most of them you find that they are diagnosed late even if they're not diagnosed late they might not actually reach their dreams so they help them to actually fulfill their dreams before anything could happen. So those are some of the of the foundations. There are many, many other foundations that can help with a lot of uh lot of things like um, uh with awareness with um because you find that sometimes you struggle with transport monies for patients that come from far. So there are foundations that helps that. And there are other things. There are also websites that we tell the parents to. Because when a child is diagnosed with cancer, you find that there's so many. They go and Google. And when you Google, you're definitely going to find a lot of information. And that information, some of them are not reliable. So you actually give them Certain websites, like even if you go, for an example, to the Chalk Foundation, to the Chalk uh, website, you'll find lots and lots of information that is helpful. So we encourage them to go to that website. If they go to the cancer website, there's other Q4Kids website that we also encourage them to go to because we want them to get the right information because the media is full of a lot of information that is actually not helpful.
1: Karen, Do you have any additional tips to share with other parents?
3: I fully support what the doctors just said there um, because if you do Google anything, you'll get yourself completely lost and you'll get yourself in a complete tiz because there's terrible information out there and it obviously doesn't have context. And context, you can only really get from from your pediatric oncologist because they've got the results they've got the specifics they've um, certainly in in Johannesburg and I'm sure it's like this in many of the other centres is there's a group of them that sit together so you've got wonderful minds around the table all with their own specialist knowledge. So so they're likely to have the a much better answer than you'll ever find out there on the internet. So more important is to make sure that you have an open relationship with your doctor and you speak to them. And as as I think was mentioned earlier, you make a note because the first time you hear it you certainly won't Remember everything. You ca- it's kind of a traumatic experience, so you can't take in all the information you need. So you make a note. You go away. You think about things, and and you come back, and and then you ask those questions, and and that learning process is ongoing throughout the treatment. Um, so I think that's the most important: to to ask questions and get the answers. And if there's anything you're uncomfortable about, just keep asking. The doctors are amazing about uh, being accommodating and and answering the, the parents' silly questions over and over again because um, that's I guess what they're there for. Professor Poole, Dr. Nechituni, Karen, Audrey, thank you so much
1: for your time, enlightenment and education. Thank you. Mm -hmm.
0: Thanks. Thank you. you.
1: We've been talking all about the dynamics around cancers in children. To listen to all the episodes in our 10-part Oncology podcast series, go to discovery.co.za forward slash corporate forward slash podcasts. In our next episode, we will be talking cancers that affect men with insights from two top urologists and a surgical gastroenterologist, a must-listen for every man out there, as well as for all of us who support men and want to keep them healthy and well for a long time to come. All brought to you by Discovery.